Hebrews chapter 4, we're 14 through 16 is the passage that we have today, but I'm going to do what we did last week, and I'm going to start up at verse 11 so that we read the paragraph we had last week alongside the paragraph that we have for this week. Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Bow with me in prayer. Father, who is adequate for these things to uh, be able to think and reflect on uh, just the depths of the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, to think on, to uh, proclaim it. Um, Father, however imperfectly we do that this morning, we ask that you would still be glorified and honored, that Jesus Christ would be exalted, that the power of your Holy Spirit would come and take the truth of your word, your revelation, that it would infuse it into our hearts and minds in such a way that we are um, made strong and steadfast, holding to this confession that we proclaim in the midst of a hostile world. I pray that we would do it with great joy and eagerness in light of what it is that we have to gain. And Father, if there are any here this morning who for whatever reason are growing weary of the race, uh, weary of the striving and the battle against sin, we pray that this passage, the time that we have this morning, um, would just be sweet medicine to them. Encourage us, Father. Be good and gracious to us because of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. If you were able to pick up some sermon notes, you'll notice down at the bottom of, uh, bottom of the handout, you have a quote from Martin Luther. Luther, when he was uh, writing, studying this passage of Scripture in Hebrews, when he was noticing the transition from 4.13 to 4.14, makes this short little pithy comment, after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. If you were here last week, you... Hopefully, and, and I really mean that, you hopefully got a sense of some of the terror or the soberness that a passage like this brings. Namely, this uh, promise on the one hand that there is a rest that God ho- holds open, that He offers all of His people, all of His children, from the very beginning of creation to the day and age in which we live. God has always been offering His people rest. And that rest is sort of just a, a catchword, uh, just a, a key word to represent all of the fulfillments of all of the promises enjoyed in the presence of God. 
And everything that you see in Scripture, starting with the Old Testament, working all the way through to the time of Christ and now to this church age, everything that you see, especially in the Old Testament, those were just small examples, little windows in which you could peek in and get just kind of a glimpse or a hint of what that ultimate, perfect, unending rest would be. So the rest was not the promised land under Joshua. The rest was not the kingdom under David. The rest is something that Christ has to bring in. That's a tremendous promise. But the terror that comes along with that promise is what we read in 3.7 through 4.13, which is even though there's a rest that's out there that is still available, that you have a chance to enter into fully, you might miss it. And the reason you may miss it is because, just like the Old Testament people of God, Israel, if your heart begins to stray because of sin or doubt or unbelief, if you waver doubting the promises of God, doubting that He really does offer rest or that His rest is worth pursuing, And you began to drift away from that and drift into disobedience little by little, subtly most likely, you will drift to the point to where at the end of the day you find that tragically you've missed the best and greatest of God's promises that he's holding out and offering to you. So even though now in Christ we are already experiencing a taste of the rest that God offers us, Hebrews 3 and 4 goes on to say, but even this, it's still just a taste. Yes, we're entering into it, but be diligent to make sure that you do ultimately enter into that rest. And the danger is, is that the way that we are shown to be faithful and true to the promises to the race that we've been called to run, that comes in the verses that we looked at last week, verses 12 and 13, which basically says, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces you down to the very core of your being. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Does your heart measure up to the glory of the promises contained in God's Word? If God is offering rest and you're not resting, your heart is not lining up with the Word. Your heart does not pass the test of the Word. And then, in likewise, likewise, with the Word that exposes all of the corruption, all of the doubt, all of the hesitancy, we also have this statement that there is nothing hidden from His sight. That this God who spoke the Word that judges us that determines, that critiques our heart to the nth degree is also a God who sees everything. You are laid bare, you are naked and exposed under the holy gaze of a holy God. So last week, that's why the author calls us to be diligent. You cannot presume upon this promise of rest. Sin is always trying to chip 
its way into your heart in small, subtle ways because all it has to do, just like Israel, right? One day you're complaining about food. One day you're complaining about leadership. One day you're doubting as to whether or not God is going to make good in this test or in this trial. And before you know it, you're all the way up to the end and the greatest test that you face entering into the land, you fail. Not because that's the first time that you fail, but because all the way along the way, sin has been chipping away. And you didn't realize it. You're not paying attention. You're too lazy. You're too apathetic. You're too lax. Be diligent, therefore, so that you don't miss the rest. We said the difficulty with that is that if whether or not I pass the test, whether or not I'm able to enter the rest is dependent upon how I measure up to God's Word, how I measure up under his all-seeing gaze, where in the world do I ever find hope that this is going to happen? Because even on my best days, even my obedience is mixed with impurity. Even when I believe, I still wrestle with doubt. That's failing to measure up. But the beauty of Hebrews, and especially the paragraph that we have today, is that after saying all that, after terrifying us as Luther would say. The author doesn't come back and say, so good luck with all that. Right? Don't know what's going to happen with you guys. It's kind of a crapshoot from here on out. Right? Rather, he follows all of that up by saying, therefore, since we have a great high priest, hold fast to your confession. Just when we think he's trying to cause us to doubt and to grow weak in the knees, he comes back ultimately and says, you better not get weak. You better not get scared. But the encouragement that he gives us is ultimately not an encouragement that I find in myself. It's what I find in the person of Jesus Christ. And so just in the same way that in chapters 3 and 4, the warning is, don't fall away. Don't fall short. In this passage, we come back and we have two complementing exhortations. Hold fast, draw near, and that's what we're looking at today. Let's start with the first one, hold fast. In verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. I want to start with what the confession is before we look at why we should hold on to it, all right? What is, when he says, hold fast our confession, what does he mean? Does he mean hold fast to a doctrinal statement, hold fast to a creed, to a statement of faith? Well, in part, yes. It's not less than that, but it's certainly more than that. Let's give this illustration uh, man and woman come together to, to get married, and they recite, they go through their wedding vows. And in their vows, they profess and confess their love for one another in, in front of all these witnesses. They're confessing that, I believe this is the woman for me, in part because she's grabbed hold of my heart and vice versa with him. And so they enter into marriage after confessing, after stating these vows written out on paper. You can print, you can find it, right? Ten years into the marriage, 
They start to hit choppy waters and they go to a marriage counselor. And among any of the other things that the marriage counselor may say, one of the things that he says is, stick to the vows. Keep to your wedding vows. What, what does he mean when he says that? Is the couple supposed to go out, run home, and find the transcript of their wedding and say, okay, here it is. We got it. Are they supposed to break out the video of their wedding and sit down and watch it? What what does he mean when he says, keep to your vows? Well, in part, he does mean rehearse the vows in your head. Remember, you promised, you pledged to love and honor and obey and submit and all those other things that you said. Remember that. Keep to those vows. Carry it through. But... In carrying those vows through, what you also find is you can't carry those vows through without also doing something with your spouse, right? I I can't love my wife as Christ loves the church. I can't remind myself of that vow without then being spurred on to actually do something with my wife. In the same way then, when the author comes and says, let us hold fast our confession Yes, he does mean hold on to the content of your faith. Hold on to the truth. But understand from a biblical point of view, holding on to the truth is nothing less than holding on to Jesus because he is truth. So it's not just that I'm supposed to think doctrinally, but here we come back again to the condition of the heart. My confession is meant to stir up my heart so that I don't fall away and so that I remain faithful to the Savior who bought me. Look at, it, look at a couple places. Uh, this Romans passage we'll put up on the screen for you. You don't need to turn there. Notice what Paul says in Romans 10, 8 through 10. Paul says, but what does it say? Referring to Scripture. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Do you, you see what Paul is doing there? The confession of our faith is most certainly something that we can speak and say and recite, but it's it's not merely a rote word of repetition. It is something that speaks not just to the ears but to the heart in such a way that my heart is moved, is drawn to believe. That the affections of my heart, when I hear the things that I'm confessing, is stirred up within me. And as my heart is stirred, I find an increasing desire to continue to chase after Christ. Let me me throw up some other passages up on the screen that kind of illustrate some of the things that we confess and how confessing those things inevitably results in some sort of action or some sort of change of heart. Matthew 10, verses 32 through 33. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. 
And of course, the very next verse after that is, but if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father. You think Jesus there is just talking about a simple lip confession? No, Jesus is talking about confessing me before men when men are pressuring you. When they're putting you under threat, under risk. If you confess me, here's the reward at the end. Here's the promise. I confess you before my Father. Mark chapter 8, verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do you believe that? Do you confess that? Isn't that what the church has said over countless generations? When facing martyrdom, when facing persecution, the church steals itself and says, no matter what the world may bring against us, I believe losing my life is actually the greater reward. And that if I try to save it, if I try to keep myself comfortable and protect myself, I end up losing far more, infinitely more than what I can gain in this life. That's a confession. You confess this life to be pitiful in comparison with the life that's to come. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Revelation twenty-two twelve. Here's Jesus speaking. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. We confess Jesus as Lord. We confess Jesus to be the one who is coming again to raise the dead and then to judge the living and the dead and to reward them accordingly. That's part of our confession. Does that confession move us to a certain kind of lifestyle, to a certain kind of affection or desire or pursuit? But see, here we come back again to the difficulty that Hebrews presents us with which is really the difficulty with ourselves, is that on the one hand, yes, okay, I believe all of that and I'm willing to confess it. But when the author says, hold on to that confession, I have to admit, it's hard to hold fast to that confession, right? Anyone find it easy to throw their life away on the promise that in the future, sometime later, You'll get something better. Anyone find that easy, that promise, that confession to hold on to? Anyone find it easy to hold on to the confession that even when the world turns its back on me, even when the world opposes me, makes no difference because the Lord stands with me. Right? Do you see what's going on? Hold fast to your confession. See, the people who are getting this letter, who initially received this letter, here's, here's what they're facing. Two things. One, they're facing persecution. And part of the temptation that comes with persecution is to say, you don't have to suffer. All you have to do is loosen up a little bit. Don't be so tight-fisted with your confession. Don't be so extreme in confessing Christ. You're making it way too difficult for yourself. Lighten up. 
The other thing that they're facing is, I think as you go through Hebrews, this becomes more and more evident in the chapters that are coming, is that it appears that this group is also wrestling with indwelling sin. They come to Christ because they've heard the message of salvation, that my sins can be forgiven, that I can be made right in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And they come with great joy. And then as they continue to live out the Christian life, they find, okay, even though I've been forgiven of this, gosh, I still find such a battle. If the power of sin has been broken, why do I find it so attractive? Why has it not been dealt with? And so now the temptation is, well, maybe Jesus isn't enough. Maybe if you just apply a little bit of pop psychology to the problems that are plaguing you, you'll be able to find real peace of mind, real contentment, real security. Right? There's, there's nothing to do for your sin, for your sense of guilt when you come to Jesus because he's done it all. What these people say, I, I can't do that. I can't trust that it's just done just like that. Therefore, I, I need something. I need another animal sacrifice. Or I need to go back to the old ways of worshiping because that had a way of kind of just settling me down a little bit. I felt like I was doing something. You see what's happening there? Listen, people, that is not so far removed from what you and I face in the Christian life. Right? Our enemy, the world, whispers in our ears, trying to find these little cracks in which sin can wiggle its way into our heart, and it pits our confidence, our possession of our confession, against the promises that the world would have to offer us. You don't have to be miserable in this marriage. Yes, yes, yes. Marriage, picture of Christ in the church. Yes, 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 yes. But, but you, don't, you don't have to really suffer through this. You can still hold to your confession and find another way. You can have the best of both worlds, a happy marriage and Christ. All you got to do is loosen your grip just a little bit. Open your hand to receive something else. Or parents... Your kids don't have to be freaks and oddballs. They can be just like all the other kids. They can talk about all the same kinds of entertainment, all the same kinds of media. They can have all the same kinds of stuff, act the same, right? They don't have to be ostracized. They don't have to come home crying because they're being picked on. If all you'll do is just lighten up on the Jesus stuff, right? You just look so odd, Just loosen your grip a little bit. You can still keep Jesus and get all of this. And it goes on and on and on and on. And what happens is we enter into this Christian life confessing that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. That the only way to find rest is to find rest in Him. That the only pathway to pure unending joy is to be found in his presence. And the world comes along and says, no, 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 no. You don't have to wait for all that. Instead of waiting, I can give you some of that here and now. Holding on to your confession is hard when it puts you at risk, 
when it exposes you to loss, when it separates family members or friendships, or when it threatens your business. What does Hebrews say then? Well, because it's hard, just don't worry about it. Do the best you can. No. Hebrews comes in and says, even though it's hard, and even though every morning you are waking up and doing battle with sin, and doing battle with the whole world that is against you and stands against your confession, hold on to your confession. Hold on to Christ. And I look at this and I say, okay, all fine and good. But I've got page after page after page in Scripture that shows me that no one could do that. And my faith in my confession, it wavers, and I don't hold on to it the way that I should. There are times in which I bring shame to Christ or I do deny Him in subtle ways. Why why should I hold on? And He tells us right in the very first line, of verse 14, because we have what they never did. We have a great high priest. Right? See, everything that's been happening in Hebrews 3 and 4 has been about what God is saying from heaven, what he speaks over us, and how we're brought under scrutiny, under judgment through his word. It's all about what's coming towards me, what I have to deal with. And now all of a sudden we turn almost like on a dime and says, but listen, that's not reason to give up because it's not just all you. You've got a high priest who's speaking up for you on your behalf. And not just any high priest, you've got a high priest who is already standing at the side of the Father who sees into every crack and crevice of your heart. And every time, imperfection, impurity, doubt shows up in your heart, you're not left alone to try to defend yourself. Standing at the right hand of the throne is your high priest saying, I already took care of that. That doesn't disqualify him. She's still with me. We have a great high priest who speaks for us, who intercedes for us, who prays for us. And you say, but okay, to a certain extent then, well, didn't all the other people that we've been talking about, didn't they also have high priests? Yes, they did. All right, so what makes this high priest, what makes Jesus a great high priest? Well, for one, this priest actually does his work in the presence of God himself, always. He doesn't have to go out and come back in. He's always there to intercede for us. The other side of this is what we get in verse 15. We should hold on to our confession for... We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Here's why you hold fast. Not simply because you have a great high priest speaking on your behalf at the right hand of the Father, incredible as that is, but the one who speaks up on your behalf 
as he speaks, is able to say from his own personal experience, I know what that's like. That temptation that they're facing now, yes, it shows a weakness on their part. That, 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 that deception, that empty promise, that pitiful little trinket or toy, it shows a weakness that they could be tempted to draw away from what they hold to be true. But Father, I know that experience. I felt it myself. You didn't cast me away. They're with me. You can't cast them away either. But it goes even beyond that. Because even when you look back at the old priests that the people had, they had sympathetic high priests, right? I mean, think of Aaron. Aaron was a sympathetic high priest. He knew what it was like to be tempted. He knew what it was like to feel the weight, the pull, the draw of sin. So what that he's sympathetic? But this high priest is sympathetic and sinless. See, if you're diagnosed with some sort of illness or problem, it's nice to have someone to commiserate with, right? Especially someone who perhaps has had that same ailment or that same weakness. But at a certain point in time, all the commiserating in the world doesn't mean much if that doesn't ultimately bring you out of the suffering, if it doesn't show you a way out. All the sympathetic high priests in the world, at the end of the day, mean little to nothing if we all end up in the same place. Listen, fine that you can sympathize with my weaknesses, but I need something more than that. I need to be delivered from this weakness. I don't know how to beat this sin. I don't know how to beat this doubt and this temptation. And everywhere that I look, I find plenty of people that can say, yeah, brother, I got you there. I know that feeling, but I can't find anyone that says, but I can show you how to, how to defeat it until Jesus comes. And then we go back and we see in the pages of the Gospels how Jesus encountered all the temptations that we encountered, right? He's tempted not to wait on his Father. Just, just provide for yourself, you're hungry, you're thirsty, you got to eat, your father's not doing it, just do it yourself. He knows the temptation, he knows the pain of feeling tired and worn out from day after day after day, walking in faith and obedience for his father, when it looks like everything that he's doing is for absolute nothing. He knows, he knows the temptation of the Lord just to, just to phone it in, just to call it quits. I stretch out my hands all day to a stubborn, obstinate people. In one of the servant songs in Isaiah, on the lips of the Messiah is this expression that says, I look at what I've done and all my time, all my effort has been for nothing. The very people I came to help, they're killing me. But the one who knows the weakness that we encounter is also the one who learned obedience 
through those sufferings and the one who gives us the ability to find victory over those temptations so that when we are tempted to lighten up as the world would have it, when we are tempted to loosen our grip on our confession, to loosen our grip on Christ, Christ himself comes in, the heart of our confession, and says, don't do it, I can give you what you need. Don't give up. Don't fall short. I know what that fatigue is like. I know what that persecution is like. I know what that abuse is like. I know what that disappointment is like. But I can give you the strength that you need to persevere and to hold on. And so is it any wonder then when we come to verse 16, when the author shows us all that we have in Christ as this great high priest, great because he has an access that no one else had, great because he's sympathetic, he himself has encountered our weaknesses, and great because even with weakness, he still gained the victory over it and offers that to us. Now what happens in verse 16? Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. People, do not miss how revolutionary this second of the two commands is, this let us draw near. You understand that in all of the Old Testament, this, this is not said, this is not done. Right? God over and over again is telling his people, don't you dare come near. In Exodus, God's going to meet with the people at Sinai, and he tells Moses, Moses, if anyone, any man, woman, child, if any animal so much as touches this mountain that I'm going to set down on, they're going to be struck dead. Do not have them come near. And even when... God prescribes the way in which he can be approached through Old Testament worship. He says, no one comes near to where I dwell in the Holy of Holies. There's one day in which I'll let that happen. But every other day, you have to keep your distance. If you try to come near, if you come too close, you're dead. And now after... 39 books in the Old Testament that are basically telling us, you better be careful. You better not get too close. If you see God, you better fall on your face as a dead man and hope that he doesn't strike you dead or cause you to unravel from the very core of your being. After all that, now Hebrews comes in and says, yeah, go run in. Why? Because we're cut above all these other people, those four slobs over there, they just didn't have their stuff together. We do. Therefore, let's go run in. Absolutely not. We go running in because of our great high priest who has already entered ahead of us. So what happens is the same God whose holy gaze sees every crack and crevice of my heart, whose word judges down to the very thoughts and intentions of my heart, I'm told to approach that God. 
And more often than not, even though I may say that I want to, I really don't when I really start to think and dwell on what that means. But as I come into the throne room, as I come into this holy, perfect God, who Hebrews will remind us later, is still a consuming fire, guess what else I see? I see another man standing right next to him who looks like me, who suffered like me, who was tempted like me. And as I approach the throne and as you approach the throne, that man that stands there, that great high priest, is saying to his father, this one's mine. He can come. This one's mine. He can draw near. I've covered this one. He doesn't have to flee. And so because of Jesus, we're invited to come into a place where before we would never dream of going. And when we come to the throne, we don't come to a throne of judgment. You see what we come to? We come to a throne of grace. Because the judgment has already been taken care of. And when we come to this throne that once represented our judgment but now represents an eternal source of grace for us, we're told that when we come, we receive mercy and we find grace to help in our time of need. Let me just draw your attention just to that last little part there in verse 16. When it talks about receiving mercy and finding grace to help in time of need, the word that you have there for time is we wrestle with how to kind of communicate the sense of that in a, in a smooth English, English translation. The idea is a good or a suitable or appropriate time. So it's something like, yes, come to the throne of grace so that you can find mercy and so that you can find help at an appropriate time for your need. That, that's something of what's going on. Which means this. What, what the author of Hebrews would have us understand is this drawing near, this is not a one and done kind of thing. Right? How often are you tempted to step away from your confession to what you hold dear? How often? Every day. How often do you need to draw near? Every day. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And you need them. So you better go get them. And the promise is, is that as often as what we come... Day after day after day, every time that we come, every time that we ask, every time that we seek, our high priest says, I know exactly what he needs to face this temptation. Not just to endure it, but to win out over it. And at the right time, when that grace is needed, it's given to us. So you can't go to the throne of grace and say, just give me all that you got, enough to last me for the rest of my life. It doesn't work that way. 
No, in your time of temptation, you need grace for that temptation. You need grace for that trial, which means you need to go to the throne room then to get what you need now. Because the option is trying to do it for yourself. And if you're just going to try to do it yourself, good luck passing the test for rest. You're never going to be able to rest. Because you're never going to be able to do it. After he terrifies us, Luther says, he comforts us. This is something worth holding on to. Hold fast to your confession. Draw near. Do not give up. Do not grow weak because the joy and rest and reward that's offered you far surpasses anything that you can imagine in the here and now. And even when you get to that point when you think you cannot endure another day, you have a great high priest who not only continues to identify with you in your weakness, but he continues to give you day by day, moment by moment, every bit of grace that you need for that moment. Hold fast. Draw near. It's going to be worth it in the end. Let's pray. Father, who are we that we deserve or should ever hope to gain any blessing like this high priest that you have given us? to gain anything in the work of Christ, a work that we didn't do but that is freely applied to us as if we had done it ourselves, to be reconciled to you, to have pardon, to have peace, to have forgiveness, and yes, Father, even to have our hearts growing and maturing in such a way that more and more we find all the pleasures of this world to be pitiful and cheap in comparison with the joy and the pleasure that you offer us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that for this church, that for Edgewood Baptist, that you would create within our hearts and minds a rock-solid steadfastness in our confession, that not only would we hold to and proclaim the truth of the gospel of our salvation, but that we would hold to the man, the person of our salvation. And that no matter who stands against us or what we stand to lose, like Paul said, we would count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you that every day that we step out to be beaten and battered by the temptations of this world, that every day you continue to shower us with more grace and more mercy, that you will never cast us away that as often as we need it, we can come and ask for it and that you give grace abundantly. Thank you for Jesus who makes all of this possible. Amen.